In order for this not to be a single slide talk, I have decided to do away with the subtitle. So I'm taking doublets off the table, just in case there was suspense. Um, so it is a very exciting time for myeloma, and I think while it is difficult to choose, we're really spoiled for choice because we've had so many new drugs added to our armamentarium over the years in new combinations, and this being a couple years old is already out of date and needs updating. The other uh, thing I love about this graph is that it shows that not only is our research turning into new lines of therapy in real time, this is translating into overall survival. And it's not just what agents we, we use, but learning how to use them, how to combine them, and uh, ultimately how to get uh, overall survival benefit for our patients. So we've definitely come a very long way. But I think uh, the seminal paper always reminds us that there was a time that the most powerful drug we had for myeloma was melphalan, and we would either give it by the bucket or the spoonful. And so whether or not you were transplant eligible was the greatest question you could ask in a newly diagnosed patient. I really don't think that's necessarily uh, a big decision in starting your induction, at least not in the United States and not in 2019. But the NCCN still does make that decision, that division, um, so this is newly updated, the 2020 version of the NCCN guidelines, and we actually only have two preferred regimens, but there are others, and there's a uh, plethora of options for specific situations. And I think more and more we should be moving away from having a single algorithm for treating myeloma as though it were one disease, and really recognize that the patient in front of you is an individual, and take all of uh, the variables of the patient, the therapy, and the myeloma into consideration. So our general paradigm remains the same, and at each stage, I think there are still unanswered questions. We all agree there should be an induction, but again, I've questioned the uh, importance of transplant eligibility. What about comorbidities? A lot of our patients will be diabetic or hypertensive at the time of their diagnosis. They may have presented with a spinal fracture and may not be able to come in or just not have the social support. Some patients live down the street. Some patients are many hours away from a myeloma center. And how long is induction? I see a number of places doing four, four to six. Is there a fixed number? Should we be treating to best response? And then moving to transplant. Does everybody need one? Maybe. But does it need to be up front? Should they be delayed? Should it be both? Is one enough? Should we do away with tandem transplants? Or is there still room for that? And then moving to consolidation, which really seems to be more of a geographic concern, uh, depending on where you are, but who should get a consolidation and what agents should be used, I think, are still uh, not answered. And then maintenance, now that we finally stopped debating whether or not we should continue therapy, we don't agree on how long or with what agents. And so a quick word on induction regimens. There are some uh, data that I think... Um, sort of weigh on our minds. The SWOG really was, even though I think in the United States, most of us were already using this as the standard of therapy, but it gave us the evidence to support uh, VRD or RVD as our primary baseline, and this is the one in the NCCN guidelines. It again compared the addition of bortezomib to RD, which uh, hopefully you are familiar with is kind of the backbone to many of our studies. Uh, looking at PFS benefit, and now also has given us overall survival benefit, which is really the endpoint we aim for. 
but can we do better? I think KRD in the front line, you know, this is already data back from 2012, so in myeloma land, this is old data, but it's still very impressive that KRD alone gives you impressive results, but with the addition of uh, transplant, we're really talking about over 63% is the stringent CR rate. So this is where complete response and SCR may already be getting out of date. It was one of the first studies that gave us uh, MRD data. And so depth of response is now no longer just a hematologic assay. I think uh, MRD is the best that we have this year, but I certainly look forward to in future years having uh, new, better, uh, and maybe completely novel options. And the last thing I like to point out is that a lot of our recommendations seem to be um, stratified by cytogenetics. It is the best thing that we have to look and try to separate out what are so-called uh, high-risk patients, but we now do have therapies that seem to abrogate that, and so maybe we need to think of them a little bit differently. As far as KRD, this is the Forte study, which has come up before, I know. Um, first, comparing the KCD to KRD, I think that we've, again, supported with multiple different combinations that an IMID and a proteasome inhibitor are the better combination rather than the use of an alkylator. In the study, they then separated patients out and looked, if you just consider the KRD induction, uh, transplant versus continuous therapy, and then a second randomization to um, maintenance, whether it should be single agent or double. And so the preliminary efficacy, as I mentioned, showing the IMID proteasome inhibitor uh, superiority, and then uh, most recently, again, looking at all, these are revised ISS staging, so it includes the cytogenetics, and it really shows that for all patients, we now have a regimen that is fairly risk agnostic, so maybe we don't need to separate our patients out so much. Similarly, I think now the question becomes quads. This is where I disqualified the doublet from the title of the talk. We're now getting data that shows um, the addition of uh, daratumumab or a monoclonal antibody to an uh, imid proteasome inhibitor triplet. This is the European study, um, again comparing VTD to the addition of DARA with an induction, a transplant consolidation with the same regimen you had up front, then a second randomization to maintenance versus observation. Uh, certainly very impressive and continuously deepening responses, and not surprisingly, the addition of daratumumab has increased responses across the board at all time points, and this has translated into a PFS benefit. The American version of the study is a little bit smaller, um, but it does use RVD, which again I think is the established uh, preferred uh, induction triplet and it compares, again, an induction of RVD versus DARA-RVD, followed by a transplant, followed by consolidation for everyone, and then maintenance for everyone, which, again, is a, quite a difference from the European one. And this time, using response as the primary endpoint as an attempt to, again, get data out quicker uh, in real time for use. And so SCRs, not surprisingly, again, deeper and... Um, I'm sorry, the graph moved, but the depth of response is true across the board. And similarly, um, after induction, transplant, consolidation, responses get deeper. The follow-up is still quite uh, immature, I would say. I think these numbers will get deeper with longer follow-up. So certainly a very exciting uh, proposition. 
but maybe not for everyone. So I think patient selection will eventually be one of the, the key takeaways. Um, again, we now talk about depth of response. It's no longer a CR. I think what we define as a complete remission is actually MRD negativity. And so we now have both deepening uh, and the benefit, of course, of the quad over the triplet. So what about transplants? Again, we've been doing this for a very long time. I think most of our fellows uh, don't know what life without transplants were. Um, and so the use of stem cell therapy to use high-dose melphalan has um, survived the test of all our novel agents. I think we continuously try to debunk it, and it still uh, makes its presence felt. Two, I think take-home messages. One, um, this is a, a representative study where everyone had a Lendex um, induction, and then either chemotherapy or high-dose transplant, and then a second randomization to maintenance and not. And so with PFS, I think the clear winner is the transplant. So absolutely, high-dose melphalan will give you a PFS benefit. But in overall survival, it seems that the continuation of therapy or maintenance is the more important, regardless of how you get to it. So one of the uh, thoughts. This was a study that we had hoped would answer the question. I remember we're finally going to get our answer. Is it RVD or is it transplants for everyone? So we compared RVD induction followed by transplant or continuous chemotherapy followed by maintenance. And while, again, there was a clear response benefit and PFS benefit at three years uh, favoring the transplant arm, both the RVD and the transplant arm did have a considerable number of patients attaining uh, MRD negativity, and the overall survival remained the same for both arms. So while the transplant may uh, increase the proportion of patients who will reach that MRD negative state, they are very similar and happen at about the same uh, time and frequency. So I thought the take-home was much more that maybe MRD negativity is a worthwhile endpoint and it is a goal, doesn't matter so much how you get there. And next for maintenance, again, this was the hot debate for most of my years in training. I think we now have plenty of individual data and uh, meta-analysis that puts it all together. This, again, combining all of our large studies, the CLGB, IFM, and the transplant arm of the Jemema study. Um, so over 1,000 patients really um, making the point that maintenance is the way to um, keep our patients out of trouble. And again, with long enough follow-up, an overall survival benefit, which uh, we don't often see anymore uh, due to the timing. And I think the stamina trial is another one worth mentioning. I think most of us were surprised. Uh, the study randomized patients after one autologous transplant to either a second transplant, a consolidation, or straight to maintenance, and all three arms continued therapy and there really showed no difference between the three arms. So single-agent lenalidomide may be as good as a second transplant, which uh, I think does uh, bring tandem transplants into question, but not the first. There are, of course, a number of issues and points of um, debate for the study, but I think it, it makes its point. And secondly, just continuous therapy. This is, again, about 1,000 patients, which we don't often have in a single study, pulling data from three studies, um, stressing the point that continuous therapy is still the best thing we can do for our patients. And so what is the goal? When you meet a patient, we're still not able to aim for cure. I think long-term we are trying and we're aiming in that direction, but it's considered an incurable disease. 
And as I had mentioned previously, it's the depth of response that is changing. There was a time when a CR was a rare event. We then worked a rate up to fairly often getting CRs. Now we're getting MRD negativity, not only in the front line, but in the relapse setting. And although it's an imperfect test, and we can certainly spend all day debating the pros and cons and the different modalities um, and the lack of uniform criteria or uh, definition, the deeper you go, the longer um, the remission seems to last. So I think that definitely is uh, an accepted endpoint. The benefit of MRD, again, however you define it, the deeper you go, the better. Um, And while it's not yet a predictive uh, test for us, which would be nice, it is clearly a prognostic factor um, at multiple time points. So certainly something I think we should be looking forward. So where do we go from here? I think we've had a lot of ineffective therapies. We've had increasingly effective therapies that might get you into a remission that doesn't last. We're working on getting deeper remissions that last maybe a little bit longer. And as we come up with novel regimens, the goal is to get that remission to be deeper and more long-lasting so that we can start using the word cure. One thing to recognize, I think, is the clonal heterogeneity, and this is, uh, to me, one of the ways that we're learning more about the plasma cells themselves. So the tumor um, is still has a lot of secrets. I think we're unlocking some of it and maybe being able to target these in a way that makes better sense uh, might lead to better outcomes. Similarly, it does allow us to reuse therapies in a way that sometimes other malignancies may not. Um, but the, the evolutionary pressure, I think, is something we need to keep in mind. And on the flip side is getting to know the rest of the microenvironment. The more we learn about myeloma um, responses to therapies and how our patients do, maybe we shouldn't just be targeting the tumor cells themselves. It's really going to take a multi-directional approach and either t- targeting the microenvironment or having a synergy between the agents uh, will really be the one to, to change. And certainly CAR-T, I know, uh, will be a topic for another talk, but I think as we move uh, incorporating drugs as well as immunotherapies and more cellular therapies, that may change the paradigm entirely yet again. So hopefully uh, in the last few minutes, we uh, I've convinced you that one size does not fit all. So there will not be an answer of how to treat myeloma. We need to select our patients very carefully. Maybe we can move towards a response-adapted therapies because we're still very much in a trial and error uh, situation where we don't have predictive tests for our patients. I think transplant remains a powerful tool as much as I would love to not put patients through it. And now that even though it is not the one and done that we had hoped, uh, with the use of maintenance, I think the combination is still very powerful. And then adjusting to new insights in real time, we would all like phase three data we very rarely have it, and we rarely have it in time. And so as data comes up, sort of getting real-world experience, I think the IMID and PI is a proven triplet. Um, do we replace one of them with a the monoclonal antibody? Should we be adding it and considering quads? Again, in which patients? And where are immunotherapies? As with everything else, we start in the sickest of the sick and in the relapse setting, but I think slowly as we move it forward, And as we learn how to manipulate the constructs as well as mitigate toxicities, this may be another uh, great game changer. 
And as we cannot wait for overall survival, we can't wait to, for PFS what are appropriate surrogate endpoints that will give us that information and allow us to have data uh, in a shorter window. And so to not leave you only with questions, um, what should we be doing with induction? In my mind, I think a PI and IMID triplet is a powerful way to go. And in certain patients with an addition of a CD38 antibody, what about transplants? Most patients would still benefit from a transplant if they are eligible, but I don't know that they all need it up front. Uh, maybe MRD negativity will prove to be a, a valid endpoint uh, in helping us with that decision. For consolidation, I think certain patients, again, maybe in a risk-adapted or response-adapted uh, plan in order to get them to their deep remission, and maintenance, I think for us to call it maintenance, it really needs to incorporate an agent that got them into that remission to then maintain the remission. Um, so anything that was used successfully to get them into that response could be used uh, long term. So with that, I thank you for your attention. <laughs>